Good morning and welcome to The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center. I'm Candace Fibbs. The Weekender for Saturday, October 29th presents Legends and Lore, unusual and unexplainable stories of the Tri-Counties. Today, I'm joined by three guests, each one sharing an unusual story or legend from their area. Lisette Gaudette of the Yarmouth County Museum and Archives. She's often seen floating eerily over the top of a swamp along Moose Mill Road. Samantha Brannan of the Barrington Museum Complex. He was standing beside her bed and he was clutched over like he was cold and, and in pain. And local author, Razor Mooney. And while he was in uh, Clare, they did get some words out of him and something that sounded vaguely like Jerome was something that he said. Each one is sharing a tale that's sure to send shivers down your spine. This special presentation of The Weekender will return in just a few moments. Welcome back to The Weekender's special presentation of Legends and Lore. I'm Candace Fibbs. This morning, I'm joined by three guests, each one sharing an unusual story of the Tri-Counties. It's October and spooky season is upon us. Joining me this morning is the archivist of the Yarmouth County Museum and the spooky season aficionado, <laughs> Lizette Gaudet. It's always a treat to sit down and share your love of folklore and the unusual with you. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you. Uh, over the years with the museum, and we've talked about it, over the years. You've put on an array of Halloween-related activities at the museum. Can you trace back where your interest for the spooky and the unusual begins? Oh boy, it's uh, it's pretty much been all my life. <laughs> um, I've always enjoyed Halloween. Uh, since I was a kid, I've enjoyed dressing up uh, during Halloween and all of the activities that come around it. And growing up as an adult, it just got uh, just continued on. So, um, you know, I love all the spookiness, the horror movies and haunted houses and all of that. So it's been a lifelong, uh, lifelong obsession. Um, so you've been in your role with the Yarmouth County Museum for nine years, now. for nine years. Has your role with the museum fed into that in reading and kind of research within the Tri-Counties? Oh, well, it certainly uh, it certainly helped it along. Um, I've, you know, as I said, I've always been interested. And in so learning all of these ghost stories, these folklore stories of the area has has just uh, really fed into all of those spooky things that I enjoy. So um, it's certainly helped the uh, the obsession. <laughs> Have you come across anything that has surprised you or shocked you, um, either putting together a Halloween event or just general reading? Um, uh, not really. Um, 
I think uh, if I if I were to think of of anything, it would just be kind of the diverseness of the stories, um, because Yarmouth was such a, a shipping. You know, we we uh, made our living in shipping um, and the sea. You would think that all of the stories would be about. Uh, perhaps ghost captains or, or pirates or things like that. But there's a lot of different uh, different stories, uh, different hauntings, different reason as to why there might be ghosts around. Uh, so it's not just about the sea, although that plays a big part in it. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of different activities that have happened. Having done some reading myself on unusual events and legends in Yarmouth. I think about, I think twice about the town and I think the sea as well, because as you mentioned, it plays such a big part. Um, And there's a legend of the Grey Lady that makes me think twice when I'm out on a boat (laughs) in the ocean. Um, And there's a home in the south end of town, the captain's house, that makes me kind of look up at the widow's peak and wonder what really happened there. So have you found that maybe there's a landmark that makes you stop and look at it twice oh definitely the churchill mansion that's uh, i mean i think that's one that's really popular with everybody um that one i ever since a child was fascinated with that house um and was lucky enough to go and stay in it uh, a few years ago before it was uh, renovated um and it was quite creepy in there i don't know if it was because of the stories that we've heard or the the general ambiance of the building but uh but it was definitely uh definitely creepy in there but sadly or maybe luckily i did not see any ghost (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i encountered some people staying there who weren't aware of the legends and i thought twice whether i should (laughs) share the story of churchill mansion and i did i ended up telling them about it but uh it didn't deter them i guess (laughs) they didn't see any they didn't see anything uh at least before i told them the story (laughs) Who knows? Sometimes it gets in your mind a little very bit. Very true. Very true. <laughs> so in preparation for today, uh, I know you've put together a story to tell us for the spooky season. Please go ahead and share it. Yes, yes. Um, well, you did mention a gray lady, but I will talk about, I don't think she's the same. I will talk about the lady in gray. Um, I don't know if she's the same as the one that you had in mind. This one isn't on the sea, uh, but rather on moods mill road um so this ghost known as the lady in gray goes back to yarmouth township in the 1700s she's often seen floating eerily over the top of a swamp along moods mill road this apparition has been described as a will-o'-wisp or a free spirit she is seen most often during moonlit spring evenings which i thought was very specific but (laughs) So goes the story. Some accounts say she's dressed entirely in grey. However, the more popular description is that she's dressed in authentic Acadian garb, which included a skirt, cloak, and a sunbonnet to cover her head. All these clothings, of course, are in grey. Now, none of the descriptions, in none of the descriptions, anyone could describe her face. In fact, in all accounts, she is described as faceless. On one occasion, a resident was driving along when she claimed to have seen the lady in grey. She recounted that she was driving in her Model T Ford convertible when she noticed a figure of a woman. 
She slammed on the brakes at the sight of this woman, who was dressed in a grey Acadian outfit and gliding along the swamp by the road. She watched her for several minutes until the woman silently disappeared behind an old maple tree. On another occasion, a young couple, out for a romantic evening stroll, became frozen in place when they saw a woman, dressed all in grey, float along the swamp until she disappeared into thin air. The most shocking part, they said after, was that the woman did not have a face. So while it's not entirely known who the Lady in Grey is, there are several theories as to what she is doing. Some locals claim that she is in search of an Acadian treasure that's buried in the area, while others say that she actually is protecting this treasure and appears when she senses someone is getting close to it. Some believe that she appears when there's a disturbance within the Acadian population, while others say she appears when Acadian landmarks are threatened, changed, or damaged. So many people believe that while the uh, faceless thing might be a little creepy, that she is in fact not a malicious ghost, but rather a protector of the local Acadian culture. That is certainly different than my gray lady. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. The Moods Mill Road, is that, does that pass through an area like well-known in the Acadian community? Yeah, it's, yeah, towards more the, uh, the Argyle section, uh, Argyle County there. So it's more, more towards the Acadian sections. And what would an Acadian treasure look like? I'm not sure. It doesn't specify in the story, um, but it would likely have been, because Acadians are were quite religious at the time, um, it might have been things from the church. So that was kind of uh, alluded to that there might be chalices and things like that. Um, and uh, But I don't know if there's gold doubloons or things like that. I don't think that that would have been part of it. So it would be interesting to know what uh, what would be in the treasure. Certainly valuable enough for her to uh, to appear to people. To continue protecting That's it. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems um, that that is often when you do see these spirits is when there is something to protect, yes. something left behind. Yes. And that seems to be a popular theme in a lot of folklore stories. For sure. I thought this one was interesting because this one doesn't say that it this treasure belonged to her. Um, and a lot of times you'll see that it's something that belonged to uh, to the spirit. So, or maybe this uh, treasure did belong to her, we're not sure, but it, it didn't seem as that. So it's an interesting thing that she has uh, kind of appointed herself as the protector of it. And other than her appearance, there has been no kind of threat to the individual. Her right. appearance has been enough to kind of ward those people away. That's right. I would imagine that the faceless part is uh, kind of what uh, keeps them away. Yeah, that might be enough to do it. <laughs> um, the Grey Lady story that I have certainly has similarities um, in that she too has no face. Mm. She either is described as having a grey veil covering her face or having no face at all. So certainly some similarities, yeah. no connection to the Acadian kind of lore, but more so she appears to protect vessels uh, approaching uncharted sandbars or rock ledges. 
And the theory is that she perished in a shipwreck Hmm. and she is trying to warn others. Interesting. And again, kind of that protector mentality. Right, right. Yeah. Um, the, The stories seem to be so closely connected i wonder if it's just you know they, <laughs> throughout the years they might have uh, it might be the same lady but it might be yeah. and you do find that as stories are passed on especially word of mouth yes. stories that an embellishment here a little detail there For sure. and all of a sudden we have one spirit who's become two perhaps <laughs> that's right that's right yeah Um, As Halloween approaches, uh, the Museum and Archives has more on kind of the spooky side of Yarmouth that people can can read about and and access? Yes, absolutely. Um, So on our website, we have archival packages, and we have a package that is of ghost shipwrecks crimes, mysteries, and law enforcement in Yarmouth County. This package includes uh, ghost stories such as the ghost of the old uh, Reichen Inn, or Reichen Inn, and uh, crime stories such as the murder of John Heslin, mysteries such as the disappearance of Benjamin Trefry, and much more. So there are a lot of mysteries, a lot of ghost stories, shipwrecks, things like that, that uh, that we have here in Yarmouth County. This is just a bit of a taste of it, but certainly uh, interesting reads. That's $20 and can be purchased on our website at yarmouthcountymuseum.ca. And once you buy it, you get a digital copy, so it's yours. And uh, we also, on our website, have a folklore in Yarmouth County video. Uh, this this is just, uh, it, the cost is $1.99. And the video recounts four stories. It has the story of the Rub-A-Dub, which is also a, a great ghost story. The Mary Celeste, um, which is not just uh, from Yarmouth, but definitely a, a worldwide uh, story. And a story about witchcraft in Yarmouth County and the legend of the Casket Lady, uh, which was a very eccentric, let's say, lady um, in the area. Sheer amount of stories just on this topic alone. Oh, yeah. Amazes me. Um, You know, Yarmouth is a very old town and a lot of history here just feeds feeds into that for sure for sure uh, the challenge is wasn't finding information to put in this package in these videos but seeing which ones to take and uh, we'll we'll put some more out as well um so as we go into the fall um what can we look forward to as far as events at the Yarmouth County Museum well, we are very excited to bring back our Escape the Museum escape room. This is the first since the pandemic started, so we are uh, beyond excited to be bringing our escape room back. Um, it's going to be Escape the Museum, The Last Job, uh, and will be held on November 12th, which is a Saturday, and then November 15th to the 19th. So it is a brand new escape room. Puzzles, challenges, and clues will be a plenty as teams race to escape and find some stolen loot. This time, teams will have an hour and 15 minutes to try and escape, but will have to make a decision during the game that could change their entire outcome. 
because just escaping from a room wasn't not enough. enough anymore. After after uh, <laughs> after waiting this long, it's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on deck for the fall or even into the early winter? Um, we don't have too too much. There will be a holiday tea in December, but um, plans for that are are kind of just underway now. Um, so we'll kind of trying to to add as as we go there, but definitely the escape room is is our our big one for this next couple of months. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Lizette. It's always a treat to uh, <laughs> to sit down and hear some stories and just get a recap on what's going on at the museum. Always fun. Thank you, Candice. <laughs> Douglas was on deck and the, the sea washed him into the ocean. Uh, they were out on the beach and found a man leaning up against a rock and he had no legs. They thought he was dead at first. The Weekender's special presentation of Legends and Lore returns in just a few moments. The Weekender's special presentation of Legends and Lore continues. As we continue our Legends and Lore episode, I'm joined by Sam Brannan of the Barrington Museum Complex. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about your role with the Barrington Museum Complex? So I am the executive director for the um, Barrington Museum Complex uh, managed by the Cape Sable Historical Society. And we are a four museum complex located here at, right along the Barrington River uh, at Barrington Head is what we called it as the old term, but um, by the Kayak Brook is what it's kind of known as locally. Okay. And in your years with the Barrington Museum Complex, and of course, today we're focusing a little bit on the unusual or eerie side of things. Have you come across anything particularly unusual when it comes to the Barrington area? So yes, there's there's a few different stories. Um, some is, is, would be just as simple as um, a mid-19th century, about 1840s report of lights dancing over the Barrington Bay area. So that's just a spooky you know, questionable. I did, of course, forward that to the Shag Harbor Incident Society because I thought that would be pertinent information um, for them to know. Um, but the mo one of the most compelling, probably the most compelling story um, that I heard that I felt had a, a good provenance and was pretty secure in, um, in its origin um, was about a 10-year-old girl named Permilla. Um, her father was a captain uh, on a sailing vessel. Um, she lived in Clark's Harbor. And uh, she was, oddly enough, friends with another man that sailed on her father's fishing vessel, or, or, I guess friend or mentor or something like that, or familial. Um, and he was, I think, a cook. And his name was uh, Douglas. And he had, they had had a number of conversations and one day uh, they were talking about dying, what it would be like if they died and, and teasing her, he said to her, uh, I promise if I go first, I'll come back and tell you what it's like. And so uh, 
that was, you know, just not a thought given and they, they carried on their ways and um, he was on a sailing boat. They, and cooking and life is normal, went out on a voyage and with Pramila's father, of course, and they were around Weymouth area in Nova Scotia and uh, they had cut a bunch of lumber and they were taking it back to Clark's Harbor. And so they loaded the ship and started back. It should have been a 10 hour journey. And so they were not long underway and a storm approached. The barometer started dropping and just everything went wild and it was more fierce than expected. And so it battered this boat and um, uh, Douglas was on deck and the, the sea washed him into the ocean. And um, there were other men that were washed into the, the ocean. It was, uh, I, I, there'll be more on that part after, I guess. Um, and, uh, but Pramila's father was able to grab a hold of a rope to prevent him from getting in, uh, swept into sea. They never did find Douglas. The crew tried to search for him. Um, I know the boat was apparently disabled completely. It lost its mast and, and other means of, of steering and whatnot. Um, so at the same time, Pramila was getting ready for bed. And when she opened her door to her room, she saw Douglas and he, uh, he was standing beside her bed and he was clutched over like he was cold and, and in pain. And then he just disappeared and she knew he was gone and that he had done what he said that he would come back and tell her that what it was like. And, uh, they, the vessel itself, as I said, it was disabled, um, and it was found after by another ship who came across it because they had no, no means of navigating at all, didn't know where they were, didn't have any ways of, of turning the vessel and whatnot. And, um, I, if I recall, the story went that they had a, um, a one flare left and, they, someone thought they saw something or said, well, we're just, you know what, we're going to have to shoot this off now. We've got one player left and we're running out of any kind of provisions at all and shot it. And not, not long after that, another vessel came along and, and found them and rescued them. But that was the one that I felt that is the most uh, kind of makes, you know, the goosebumps come over on my arm uh, that, you know, this happened to this young girl and, um, and someone that, you know, she was connected with and that he had made this, this promise to her and, uh, and fulfilled it. And, and it was, you know, connected to her history of life on the, on the seas, making her living on the seas. So that's, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he fulfilled his promise of returning and, uh, telling this young girl of his death, but not a very, uh, reassuring scene of, the afterlife cold and in pain doesn't give us give us a really nice scene but perhaps this was just his crossing over into the afterlife that that he appeared yes after that i guess maybe he couldn't deny you know depending on on what you believe but uh yeah that that was um there was there was too much factual information surrounding that that just yeah kind of kind of gave me the bit of the cold chill so um, and I like, as I say, I like that nautical connection or our marine history connection as well. Yeah. As I've talked to different people, you know, 
I see this connection emerging. A lot of stories have connections to the sea and seafaring, and Yarmouth itself is a very old town steeped in seafaring history. Barrington, Clarks Harbor, Cape Sable Island as well. Um, So the more I read, the more research that I do, the more this pattern has started to emerge that there's unusual events tied to the sea. Now, Barrington, uh, for a number of years, has been offering lantern tours right around this time of year, which seem to be very, very popular. Do they follow this similar pattern, sharing stories of unusual, eerie, unexplainable events? Not really, actually. Um, our lantern tours are through the historic district, so they're, they really pertain. There's some stories, but they pertain mainly to the the what was located in a certain area or what is still located here in some of our, our old houses. We start around the meeting house and then we walk through the historic district as far as Petticoat Lane and then we come back on the other side and we talk about the history. And as, and as I say, there are some, you know, different, sometimes funny, sometimes sad stories that are associated with that. Um, we have um, in the past offered graveyard tours as well. And those do tend to have some more, um, more spiritual stories that we've kind of connected, but um, uh, yeah, but it's a bit of a different kind of a different, we try not to be on it. We want it to be um, interesting and historical without being disrespectful when we're doing it um, that way. But we haven't really come across anything that's really spooky about our historic district yet, which I'm, I'm dying to hear more about the, you know, hear some of these awesome stories, but um, other than the lights uh, over the, the bay, which is just beside the old courthouse where my office is located, that was the only very unexplained uh, little anecdote that I've, I've heard so far. Yes. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, there's certainly the Shag Harbor Incident Society and the UFO connection there, which the society tends to take care of. I talked with Danny Reed a couple months ago as the UFO Expo for this year was approaching. Um, so certainly a famous story with that Barrington connection. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. A very popular spot uh, based on all of the um, stories that I saw written after the travel media conference <laughs> took place. <laughs> Lots yeah. of stories on Shag Harbor. So that's great. If people wanted to come in and do some research on unusual events, crime, etc. in the Barrington region, uh, where could they come in and do that? A number of places. We have an archives here, the Cape Sable Historical Society archives, and that's located in the old courthouse here. Um, There's the um, Shelburne County Archives and Genealogical Society, and they kind of have a similar um, collection uh, but it's more broad that it covers the entire county, whereas really we focus on on the Barrington area, town of Clarks Harbor, the, the former Cape Sable region. Um, Archelaus Smith would be seasonal as well, but and uh, Chapel Hill Museum, same thing, but I think that they have a lot of um, uh, information in their collective memories from their board members, as well as some, some written documentation. So that would be another resource. Excellent. And as we make our way into and through the fall into the winter, are there any activities coming up at the Barrington Museum Complex that we can look forward to? 
Well, we have a few things that were kind of in the works now and that I don't have solid, solid dates and information for because we're just waiting for some last minute information to come out or some last minute confirmations to come out. But our annual uh, old fashioned concert at the old meeting house um, happens on December the 10th at 7 p.m. That is usually a sold out event. It's uh, sought after. A lot of people describe it as being that's the that's the um the start of christmas for them it's very traditional uh we light the clm light museum on that night and that stays lit until new year's um it's just a a bit of a beacon people like to see the the lights and uh, we of course we continue with uh some we have some kids programming we do a lot of wool-based fabric textile-based um workshops and whatnot and they'll continue on on through but um just waiting on you know, venues and, and confirmation for registration and whatnot for that. But you can visit uh, barringtonmuseumcomplex.ca slash events, and that will tell you everything we have going on. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time, Sam. And we look forward to more events from the Barrington Museum Complex. And his legs were cut off as some kind of warning for him not to reveal the secrets of why he was, why he was sent out of his country. The Weekenders' presentation of Legends and Lore returns in just a few moments. The Weekenders' special presentation of Legends and Lore continues. My final guest of the morning is local author Fraser Mooney Jr., and uh, thanks so much for joining me, Fraser. Good morning. Thank you. We're chatting, of course, about local legends and lore this morning. And you've published a book on a man known locally as Jerome. He was found in Sandy Cove of Digby County back in 1863. Such a fascinating and unusual story. So I don't want my questions uh, to give away anything about the story. So Unlike uh, the first two guests, I want you just to get into it. Tell me the the story of Jerome. Sure, and as as you said, it, it uh, started in 1863, uh, which was a long time ago. But really, the story has had a life of its own for, for the many, many, many years, and people still talk about it and still uh, discuss the um, origins of where Jerome could have come from, why he ended up in Sandy Cove, why he never spoke, and why he didn't have legs. His legs were amputated. Um, so in a September, cold September day in 1863, um, some boys were out on the beach in Sandy Cove, and it's a beautiful area. If you've ever been to Sandy Cove, uh, the way the, the the beach is surrounded by the uh, by the water and and on both sides of the Digby Neck, it's just a it's a lovely area. So you can imagine anyone would want to spend some time on the beach there. Uh, they were out on the beach and found a man leaning up against a rock, and he had no legs. They thought he was dead at first, and as they got a little closer, they realized he was still alive. And he tried to escape and tried to crawl down the beach and get away, but they managed to get him into their home, which was nearby the beach get him warmed up, and pretty soon the villagers from Sandy Cove were uh, descending upon this small cabin, asking this fellow all kinds of questions. Where did you come from? What happened to your legs? How did you end up on the beach? And he seemingly refused to speak, although he seemed to understand their questions. So a lot of um, 
myths and legends kind of sprang up around who this man might be and why he refused to speak. Why would anyone not tell them why why he was there? And so people thought he might have been like a um, like a monk who was under a vow of silence, who who uh, took a vow not to not to reveal his secrets, or perhaps he was a member of some secret society like like the Freemasons or Skull and Bones or the Illuminati, and that he was under a vow that he wasn't able to reveal some of his some of the the, the origins of where he came from. And um, after being with the uh, the villagers in Sandy Cove for probably several months, they realized they weren't going to get any information out of this fellow, and he was for the most part, um, not a very um, gracious house guest. He was a bit bad-tempered. So he was not that much fun to have around. And uh, they realized, given his appearance and given some of the, the sounds that he, that he tried to make, they thought he might be Italian or he might be French or he might be Portuguese. And so they thought, well, he might be more at home uh, on the other side of uh, Bay St. Mary's or St. Mary's Bay in Clare, where the where the French Acadians live, and of course the French Acadians were predominantly Roman Catholic, and so they th figured if he was from one of those European countries, he was probably a Roman Catholic and would be more comfortable over there. So they found a, a family that took him in, and while he was in uh, Clare, they did get some words out of him, and something that sounded vaguely like Jerome was something that he said, and so the name Jerome became associated with this fellow. And he ended up living amongst the, the Acadians in Clare for the rest of his life. So he was discovered in 1863, uh, and he didn't die until 1912, April 1912, the same day as the Titanic sank, which kind of adds to the uh, the coincidence and the mystery of the story. And through that time, he he did speak very little. He said things like like Colombo, which could be the name of a ship, could be the name of the town that he came from. It could have been his own name. No one really knows the full story of that. And so a lot of speculation um, was uh, generated as a result of him living there for that many years and still not telling telling his story to anybody. And while it's not really a, a story that's that's supernatural, it has been kind of retold in, in books about ghost stories and that sort of thing. And I have um, Helen Creighton's book, Blue Nose Ghosts. And, and the great Helen Creighton was a Nova Scotia folklorist who, who wrote about uh, many ghost stories and legends. And she wrote about the story of Jerome in her book, which I think led many people to believe that perhaps there was a supernatural element to his story. And while that can't be disproved, it can't be proved either, but uh, it is fun to think about Jerome and uh, some of the many possible reasons why he could have been um, injured in the way that he was and how he came to be on the beach in Sandy Cove. And of course, at that time, when he was first discovered in 1863, it was around the time of the American Civil War. So there was a lot of um, bloody battles being fought just uh, just south of the border in, in, the, in the southern United States. Um, a little further south in Mexico, there were there were battles with the uh, the French Foreign Legion against against the Mexican troops around the same time. Uh, over in Europe, um, Italian unification was going on. All the the many city states of Italy were were fighting to get the Austrian Hungarian Empire out of there. So there was there was fighting going on there, and many people thought maybe Jerome had been injured in one of these many battles that were happening all around the planet. Um, 
and, in, and indeed in, in regards to the, the Italian situation, um, was Jerome perhaps a, a member of some royal family that was, was deposed or um, there was an abdication and he had to leave very quickly and his legs were cut off as some kind of warning for him not to reveal the secrets of why he was, why he was sent out of his country. So the, um, the legends are very, very colorful and there's very many of them. Uh, you know, it'd be nice to think that uh, our mystery man here in southwestern Nova Scotia does have um, some royal blood in him, but probably the the true origins of, of how he ended up in Sandy Cove are maybe a little more simple and uh, not as exotic, but still mysterious nonetheless. Yeah, so it's just absolutely fascinating. And some of the theories that I've come across in my reading of Jerome is perhaps he was a pirate and... Uh, it was part of a mutiny or he was starting a mutiny and uh, he was dismissed in in this manner. Made to, well, walk the plank after they cut his legs <laughs> off or his legs were shot off with a cannonball or, or something like that. Yeah, piracy. Was he a pirate? Of course, in 1863, the traditional, you know, eye patch parrot pirate really wasn't sailing the seas, but they still had privateers back then. And so right around the same time, um, the, the legends of Oak Island were becoming very popular. Uh, Oak Island, of course, um, the, the two young boys discovered the money pit back in the late 1700s. So people had been digging it at Oak Island for, for a few generations by the time Jerome showed up. So theories about pirate ships and pirate treasure and perhaps him being, uh, you know, guarding some secret in regards to uh, piracy was, was part of the legend for sure. And uh, the the other theory that has stood out for me is going back to the royal family, that maybe he was shipped off to protect an inheritance. Someone else wanted the inheritance and uh, they found a way to get rid of him. In the, uh, the, the very popular story, The Man in the Iron Mask, where um, uh, a member of the French royal family, the, the twin brother of the king, was put in an iron mask and put in prison and told not to talk to anybody. So you can almost imagine someone having their legs chopped off and sent to some foreign shore and said, don't reveal anything about where you came from because they're trying to protect again, the, the, the royal family. And actually there was a, um, a student in Clare who wrote a, um, uh, a short story about her thoughts about Jerome. And it was published in the, the Courier, the French newspaper back in the, well, the 1980s, or might even been in the 1970s. And it talked very much about, you know, how Jerome was a member of a royal family who was, who was sent overseas. And I think a lot of people, having read that story later on, incorporated some of those things into the, the legend itself. And so you hear people say, well, I, I thought he was a, some prince or a, or, a, or a monarch or some sort of thing. So I think some of the, even the, um, the speculation around who he was and where he came from really added to the flavor of, of some of these mystery stories. Yeah, definitely. Um, I find it interesting that you said that the residents of Digby Neck of Sandy Cove area shipped Jerome over to Clare because of his religion. Um, were the residents of Digby Neck not predominantly Roman Roman Catholic? Predominantly, so the, the residents of Digby Neck back in the 1860s and certainly prior to that would have been um, United Empire loyalists. They would have been um, mostly had come over from the United States when the American Revolution happened. Um, so at that time, they would have been Protestant, Baptist, um, 
I don't think there was even a single uh, Catholic church on Digby Neck back in 1863. And actually one of the uh, one of the characters early in the Jerome story was Reverend Morse, who was this uh, Bible thumping Baptist minister who, who was very famous all up and down Digby Neck. And he had spoken to Jerome or tried to speak to Jerome because he knew many languages as an educated man. And he had one of the people who had determined that he probably wasn't uh, a Protestant or a Baptist and, and very likely a, a Roman Catholic. So it wasn't um, so much uh, religious discrimination, I don't think, but I thought, I think it was more of where would he be more comfortable in a, in a home um, that perhaps practiced the same religion that he was, he was ac uh, accustomed to. But at the same time, by the time he did go to um, Clare amongst the Acadians, he didn't really show a whole lot of affinity for the Catholics either. He he, he would um, he would hold a crucifix. He would um, he would uh, at, well actually at the end of his life, as he was um, very apparently he was he was coming to the end of his life and was going to die. Um, Zabat Camo, he was living with the Camo family in Saint Alphonse at that time, did have him uh, baptized before he died as and then as he baptized and then the um the sacrament of um the, the supreme unction or the the anointing of the sick is what what they do in the catholic church so he did he did die a catholic and was buried in the Matagan cemetery which was a very catholic cemetery although he was buried in a section that was reserved for um babies who would have died before they were baptized because they weren't really sure that he was a catholic and since that time he had a simple wooden marker that um, the marker itself has has decayed and rotted over time. No one really knows where in the cemetery he is buried. If you go to the Matagan Cemetery, you'll see a monument that uh, says Jerome on it and a, and a commemorative plaque, but that was only put up, oh, about um, 10 or 12 years ago. So the... Um, so it's not at the site of where Jerome was buried. No, it's it's really if you if you pull into the parking lot of the Matagan uh, Church and the cemetery right there, you'll see it really close to the main road. But no one really knows where in the cemetery Jerome was buried. So he, uh, I had mentioned he he wasn't a very pleasant house guest. He really wanted to be left alone. And I think uh, finally in in death, even though books have been written about him, plays have been written about him. There's been movies, there's been radio productions. Um, he finally did find some anonym anonymity. He finally could be the anonymous man that he wanted to be uh, in death. It's such a fascinating tale. Um, give me a little snippet about what went into researching a man who arrived in Nova Scotia 157 years ago. And who didn't really say anything, right? Say anything. So there was, when I, when I first, um, actually I, I first became very interested in this story when I was, I myself was working at CJLS in Yarmouth. And uh, at that time, the, um, the, the movie, the French language movie, The Secret of Jerome, had come out by Phil Camo, the Acadian filmmaker. And uh, it was played here at the, at the local theater in Yarmouth. And people were lined up out the door to see it, although it was in French. I don't think there was even subtitles at the time. Um, and so um, I thought, well, this is an interesting story that I don't know a whole lot about. So I went to the local library uh, here on Main Street in Yarmouth and to look for the book about Jerome. And well, there wasn't one. 
his name had been mentioned in some some newspaper articles from a hundred years ago. As I mentioned, uh, Helen Creighton had written uh, had written her Blue Nose Ghost story had included a bit about Jerome in there. So it's more about picking out little snippets from different books and articles um, that might have contained a little bit of information. And a lot of that information was contradictory because people were just retelling legends that they had heard. So not a, not a lot of the information was um, was uh, consistent. So eventually I had an opportunity to uh, spend some time at the archives in Halifax, the Nova Scotia Provincial Archives, where they had a number of newspaper articles from pretty much from the day he was discovered right up until the day he died and then beyond. So piecing together a lot of those newspaper articles, speaking to people from St. Alphonse and Claire, whose family members would have remembered Jerome, uh, I had an opportunity to interview a number of people in regards to that. Uh, a very famous um, Acadian uh, historian, uh, Edith Kamotafs, had uh, we had corresponded. She has, she's passed away now. She's a member of the Order of Canada. Uh, she had a lot of great information about the Camo family and, and their relationship to Jerome. And so it was a matter of trying to take a lot of this information and, and compile it into uh, some kind of narrative that, you know, a chronological, a chronological order. And as I was doing that, I thought, gosh, there seems to be more information here than I ever expected there would be. And I thought, well, this could be, you know, perhaps it could be a book. So I started to write it down in narrative form and then eventually I thought, yeah, that it, it did turn out to be, uh, to be worthy of a book, I guess. Yeah. Um, this area is so steeped in legends, folklore, stories. Um, any idea where you think that interest stems from? I had an interesting conversation with someone about this, well it was about a year, it was just shortly before Halloween a year ago, and how areas that are close to the water, close to the ocean, seem to be really steeped in, in folklore and legends and myths, and, and I'm not sure if that has anything to do with it, but uh, back in, in, in 1863, we were very much more connected to the to the uh, to the American Eastern Seaboard than we were to the rest of Canada. So we were kind of m even more isolated in southwestern Nova Scotia than than we are today. And I think people uh, generate their own ideas about how things work around them, how uh, you know supernatural forces. So I think living you know living in a remote area in an, uh, in the past really gave rise to to people wanting to speculate about myths and legends and, and that sort of thing. And and really, you know, with, with Jerome, and I had mentioned uh, earlier that there had been, um, at the same time, uh, the, the Oak Island story, which today, as you know, there's a very popular television program. There's a new book out every year about Oak Island. <laughs> yeah, people uh, can't get enough about Oak Island. And... Um, so here in Nova Scotia, with, with Oak Island, with, with Jerome, right here in, in Yarmouth County, we have the Runic Stone, another uh, stone that was, that was found in Overton, um, the Shag Harbor UFO. Uh, really, we are like a, the, the Bermuda Triangle of mystery and, and myths and legends right here in southwestern Nova Scotia. And I think because we're all such great storytellers, and Candace, you know that, um, that these legends that even though they happened a uh, hundred or so years ago, are still being talked about today. So tell me, are you working on any 
other novels, any other legends that have gripped you? Someone had asked me that once before, and I said, well, when I was working on the on the Jerome story, it was more of a hobby, really. And so it was just collecting information over the course of many years before I decided to write it all down. And that was before I had kids. So now I have three children, and I find it a little harder to, uh, to find the time. But... I had uh, mentioned that, you know, we have a lot of myths and legends right here in southwestern Nova Scotia, like the Runic Stone, like Shag Harbor. I, I think there's, there's a real market for putting those together as a package and perhaps exploring our, our mysterious past as a way to uh, maybe attract tourists and visitors and people who are interested in this sort of thing. So I, I've, I've been playing with some ideas that might help uh, bring some of those ideas together and really promote our area as the mystery capital of Nova Scotia, which is the most mysterious province in all of Canada. I would agree with that. Uh, there's no shortage of mysterious and, and unexplainable stories for, for this region. That is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is my favorite topic, Candice, and I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy chatting about it. And uh, every time I do have an opportunity to talk about it, I get an email from someone who's just heard the story or has some information that their grandparents had told them. So there's always, there's always more that I'm learning about the story of Jerome, and uh, I don't think I'm done with him yet. Okay, if somebody wanted to get your book, Frazier, and learn a little bit more about Jerome, um, how would they go about doing that? Well, I know um, locally it's available at, uh, at Cole's Bookstore. Um, it's also available at the Yarmouth County Museum. And um, certainly uh, through Nimbus Publishing is, uh, is a way they can get a hold of Jerome uh, on sol solving the mystery of Nova Scotia's silent castaway. You've been listening to Legends and Lore, a special presentation of The Weekender. A special thank you to my guests this morning, Lisette Gaudette of the Yarmouth County Museum and Archives, Sam Brannan of the Barrington Museum Complex, and local author, Frazier Mooney. For Y95 and The Weekender, I'm Candace Fibbs. Happy Halloween.